go to God in prayer again, seeking his blessing upon our worship of him. Shall we pray? Gracious, merciful God and Father in heaven, we've gathered ourselves and our children together to worship, but without thy blessing we cannot do so. We seek now thy blessing upon our worship of thee. We pray that it might be acceptable and pleasing to thee. May our songs of adoration, our anthems, the holy anthems of Zion, may our offerings, our praise, our contrition, and our confession, may it all rise up before thee as a sweet-smelling savor. May all of our worship be done in spirit and in truth, and may it be offered in obedient service as an expression of our great gratitude for what thou hast done for us in Christ. We seek thy blessing. We seek the presence and the accompanying presence and the blessing of thy spirit as we, as we read, preach, and hear thy word. Prepare our hearts to receive thee through the proclamation of the doctrines of grace. May we hear thy call. May we see thee with an arms wide open. And may we hear the issue, the invitation to come. Come to thee if you seek rest for our wounded and weary souls. May we hear the very voice of Christ from this pulpit. And may it be our heart's delight to be taught of thee again. We know, Lord, that thy word will never return empty or void. We know that it will accomplish the purpose for which thou hast sent it, and we know that the preaching is the instrument used by thee to create and to strengthen faith, and we pray that it may be used by thee to that end again this afternoon. May it bring comfort to the troubled heart of the child of God, but may it also trouble those who are comfortable or at ease in Zion. May the gospel's call find its way into receptive hearts, hearts prepared by thee. Grant to him who must bring that word all that he stands in need of. May he bring it in a manner that pleases thee. Grant that once again thy voice may be heard. May thy people be edified, but above all, may thy holy name be glorified as we worship thee this afternoon. In the name of Christ, our Master, our Redeemer, and our Savior, in his name, in his name alone, as the only name under heaven whereby men and women can be saved. In his name we pray. Amen. Would you now again turn with me this afternoon to the same portion of Scripture we read this morning, Luke chapter 23. Again, I want to read the verses 26 through to 43. I guess this morning I read to 49, but I want to read this afternoon. I want to read the verses 26 through to the end of 43. Hear the word of God with me. This is God's word. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that have never borne and the breasts that have never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals with him led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, here they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. 
And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged, who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And now follow the words of our text. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. I want to repeat those two verses. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word again this afternoon. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered with me here in Wellenport this afternoon, the words of our text of this afternoon have got to be among the most beautiful words found anywhere in Scripture. They were spoken by our Lord to a penitent thief while both he and Christ hung upon the cross waiting to die. There are many portions of Scripture from which the saints of God take great comfort and hope, but among all of the precious, comforting statements of our Lord, these words have got to be the most precious. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Imagine yourself, if you can, if you will, imagine yourself lying at death's door. And the all-encompassing, the all-inclusive question for you then has to be, is it right? Is it right with me? And the Lord, is it well with my soul? And then imagine again that there you are, waiting to die, knowing that you have perhaps only a few hours left on this earth. And and as you struggle with the question of eternal weal or eternal woe for your soul, imagine that you were then to hear these precious words from Christ. Today, you shall be with me in paradise. Would that not be the most precious, precious thing possible? Is that not precisely what you had longed for all of your life? We will hear those words spoken by our Lord from, from Calvary this, morning, this afternoon. It is hard in this context not to think of an earlier incident which foreshadows this plea of the criminal there on the cross. I want to remind you of the Old Testament incident of Joseph after he had been sold into slavery by his brothers. You know that story, and you remember that he was taken to Egypt and sold into the household of Potiphar. And he was then falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and cast into prison. And and remember with me now, we confess that according to our Bibles, nothing comes to us by chance but that all things, prosperity and adversity, come to us from the Father's loving hand. And so, in other words, all of the life of Joseph, including this incident, was under the direction and the appointment of a sovereign God. 
And so then it was appointed by God. It was appointed by God that Joseph would wind up in that prison. And then while in prison, God directed it that Joseph would become acquainted with the king's butler who was about to be released. And Joseph takes the opportunity to ask of the man that he would present his case, Joseph's case, before the king after he was released. And and there too we hear Joseph pleading with this man, remember me. Remember me, remember me when it is well with you. When you stand in the presence of the king, remember me, remember me. And now centuries later, three crosses were set up on the hill of Calvary. Jesus in the center, laying down his life as a ransom for many. And on each side of him, criminals who had also been sentenced to death. And we are privileged to listen to a conversation going on between these three men on the cross, only several hours before their death. One of them sneered and taunted Christ. If you are the Christ, save us and yourself. Come down from that cross. Jesus remained silent. But the other criminal responds to his cohort. Do you not fear God? Do you not fear God seeing that we are under the same condemnation and we justly, we deserve our punishment? But this man, he has done nothing wrong. And then we hear the plea of that first criminal. We hear the words that have continued to ring down over the centuries, comforting comforting the hearts of God's children. Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, Lord, remember me. And the reply from Jesus was far more than he had dared to hope for. Today, you shall be with me in paradise. Like Joseph before him, he was asking to be remembered in order that he might be set free. Oh, not free from that Egyptian prison. No, he pleads here that he might be set free from the chains of death and hell that had ensnared him all of his life. He pleads that he may be set free from Satan in order that he may return to God. Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Today you shall be with me in paradise. We see here a man converted in the shadow of death. And from the reply of Christ, we might know that Christ heard more than the words of this man. Jesus saw more than meets the natural eye. Reading the heart as only Jesus can, Jesus found in the words of this thief a confession of sin and a profession of faith. Hearing his good confession, both of faith and repentance, Jesus reaches out to comfort this man with those precious words, Today you shall be with me in paradise. I want to minister God's word to you this afternoon using as my theme the word of salvation. The word of salvation. We want to see the penitent thief and from this incident we will learn of God's sovereign providence and then we also want to learn of God's sovereign grace. So the word of salvation, God's sovereign providence and God's sovereign grace. We've got a great drama is being played out here. The most significant and greatest act of God in this plan of redemption happens here. 
It was the design of God that his own son would die on the cross, and it was the intent of God that he would do so in shame between the dregs of society. And now the first question we want to consider is why, meaning then not why did he die. We know the answer to that question. No, no, why did he die between two criminals? There must have been a reason, if as we confess to believe that nothing happens apart from the decree of God, and if, if as we confess that God does not act arbitrarily, meaning God does not act without good reason, what then could have been the reason that God ordained it to be that Christ would be flanked by common criminals on his death? And the answer is at hand, if only we will see it, and it is, the answer is it is twofold. First of all, we are given here a perfect picture of the consequence of being confronted with the Christ. We're given here a picture, if you will, of the consequence of being confronted with the Christ. Throughout all of history, even yet today, men and women are confronted with the Christ, and we see two opposite responses, precisely as we see here in the posture of these two criminals. The one criminal softens his heart. He places his hope in Christ, and he is assured of eternal pardon, and he dies in peace. The other, having been brought to the same Christ in the same way, hardens his heart, continues to ridicule and reject the Christ, and finds no rest for his soul, and he will die eternally. Why is that now? Both of them were equally near the Christ. Both heard and saw all that happened during these last six hours. Both were suffering. Both were dying. And both were in urgent need of forgiveness and reconciliation. Yet one died as he lived, hard, cold, impenitent. The other repented of his sin, called upon the Lord for mercy, and was saved for all eternity. And all of it, all of it then as now, can only be explained in the context of the sovereignty of God. And as we will see a little later, in the great grace of God. It can be explained in no other way. However, there's also another lesson for us here when we ask the question, why, between the two criminals? And the answer to that question has to be to demonstrate the indescribable death of sh- depth of shame into which Christ had descended. Follow with me. At his birth, Jesus found himself in a stable, surrounded in a a dark and dirty, dank stable, surrounded by animals. And now at his death, Christ is surrounded by the dregs of humanity. And seen within the context of God's plan of redemption, that makes sense. Was Christ not numbered among the transgressors to show us the position that he had taken as our substitute? Was that not our place? Was that not our place? Was that not our shame? Was that not our humiliation? Indeed, we need to see ourselves in those common criminals. Along with them, we, you and I, we stood condemned to death. People of God, we are to see, we are to see those two criminals and we are to see ourselves. We were the criminals. God had condemned us to death. And now all of humanity, including ourselves, we hang there beside the Christ and we're confronted with the Son of God. And then the question is for each of us, what think ye of the Christ? Will you ignore him? Will you reject him? 
Will you mock him as did the impenitent thief? Or will you turn to him and cry out, Jesus, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, remember me? That's what we're called to see here, first of all, in that great drama of salvation on Golgotha. We see the Savior's redemption. We see a penitent, believing sinner. And we see a condemned sinner rejecting the offer of so great a salvation. And we see it all in the context of divine grace and divine providence. Oh, the world in which we live does not recognize the sovereignty or the providence of God. And that ought not to surprise us, for the Bible itself tells us that the spiritual things are spiritually discerned. In other words, the eyes of faith are necessary to, to, to discern the things of God. Indeed, unregenerate men and women, meaning non-Christian men and women, they attribute circum, circumstances in the world to the hand of fate or chance rather than to the hand of God. But for the child of God, that all takes on a much different color. For the child of God, all circumstances arise by God's determinate will, and all things great and small, the Lord God has planned them all. And that planning, that directing, in accordance with his own eternal decree, is what the Christian calls divine providence. To help us now, to help us to understand our text of this afternoon, in the context of God's providence, we need to begin by asking the question, how did it happen? How did it happen that these two criminals came to be crucified on either side of the Lord? And if we are to take the world's view, then we would say that it was mere coincidence or expedience that these two criminals were executed along with Christ. If we took, if we took that approach, we would know of no real, no real compelling reason why they were crucified together. Without the eyes of faith, we would say it was chance or it was fate. Had they been tried a few days later, they would have been executed later. If we were to ask the Roman authorities these questions, they would simply say that it was, it was expedient, it was convenient to execute all three at once. For them, the answer to the question was quite simple. Three criminals happened to be convicted. They happened to be sentenced. And they happened to be executed at the same time. It just happened that way. But but, but such a humanistic view does not take into consideration the active government of God over all creation. According to our Bibles, there is no such thing as fate or chance in this world. Nothing happens by accident. Nothing is done out of convenience or expediency. No, before the world's foundations were even laid. Imagine that. Before the world's foundations were even laid, God had determined and ordained that these two men would hang on that cross on either side of the Lord on that particular day. Before the penitent thief was even born, even before he had entered into a life of crime, before he had even been arrested, before the Roman courts had condemned him to death by crucifixion, before any of these circumstances had come to pass, God had determined that this man would be arrested at precisely this time, that he would be tried and sentenced at precisely this time, and his cross would be erected at precisely this time, and precisely at this place beside the Savior. Just as Peter was to say later of of his Lord that Jesus was delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. I want to repeat that. Peter says, Jesus was delivered up 
by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. And we must say the same thing of the thief. The fact that he was condemned to die at the hands of the Roman soldiers at this time, at this place, in this way, was by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. My dear precious people of God, what we are to see here is this, in, in, this, in this interplay of the, is the, of the divine and the human. In, <coughs> in the circumstances of the death of Christ, it was the evil hearts of the Jews that caused them to nail him to the cross. The corruption in the heart of Judas caused him to betray the Christ. The sinful nature of Pilate caused him to sentence an innocent man to die. And yet all of it, all of it came to pass within the framework of the determinate will of God and under his divine sovereignty. None of it would have happened. None of it could have happened had it not been for the will and the decree of God. God had foreordained that this man would come to this time, to this place, to be confronted with the Christ in this way on that cross. But having said that, congregation, then we must immediately also see that the same is true for each of us. That confession has tremendous implication for us. Each of us, having been brought into a saving relationship with Christ, have come to know him through the predetermined foreknowledge and decree of God. That means that God has directed all of the circumstances of your life. God has directed all of the circumstances of your life, and he has directed your life so that you would come to that saving knowledge of the Christ at the time and the place appointed by him. My dear, precious saints of God, capture all of this with me. Put some of these pieces together. The doctrine here taught us and its implications are significant and may not escape us. You see, most of you gathered here with me this afternoon, most of you were born in believing, covenant-keeping homes. And through the preaching, through catechism instruction, through the speech and example of godly parents, you were brought into contact with the Christ and some sooner and some later, but through them, through these influences, you came to a personal consciousness of both your sin and your salvation in Christ. And you then confessed him as Savior and Lord. Some of us, perhaps, were brought to the same conviction through the godly influence of a marriage partner. Others were perhaps led initially by friends, relatives, or a faithful neighbor. But whatever the circumstances may have been, whether we were born and raised in the church, whether it was through loved ones or friends or evangelization, we need to understand that all of those circumstances, all of the circumstances that led us to Christ, lie within the plan of God for our lives. Just as God planned and directed the life of this penitent thief so that it would ultimately culminate in a saving knowledge of the Christ, in the same way God planned, God ordained, God determined, God decreed, and God guided all of your life circumstances so that you too would be confronted with the Christ and you would come to a saving knowledge of him. But there remains in this text another significant doctrine, and that is of sovereign grace. Follow that with me, too. Two criminals crucified with the Christ. The providence of God brought them both to the cross beside our Lord. 
One turned from the Christ, the other turned to the Christ. How shall we now explain that? And people of God, it can only be explained in the same way that the Bible explains every other instance of conversion. It's taught us in Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, that anyone should boast. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The faith of the penitent sinner, then, must be understood as a great free gift from a sovereign God who sovereignly planted it in his heart in divine favor or, if you will, divine grace. People, when we think of these things, when we think of these two men hanging on that cross, one in faith, the other in unbelief, then our mind should for a moment go back to two other men in Scripture. You know who they are, Jacob and Esau. We learn that one became a man of faith while the other perished in unbelief. However, we do not understand that until we come to the ninth chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. And there we read, The children, being not yet born, neither having done anything good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works but of him that calls, it was said to the mother, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. So then, concludes Paul, it is not of him who wills or of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Now we begin to understand why one criminal believed and the other one scoffed. Not of him who wills or of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. So God then executes his sovereign purpose in all men. When Paul preached to the citizens of Antioch, some believed, others did not. And then we read, as many as were ordained or appointed to eternal life, they believed. Paul preached to a group of women by the riverbanks at Philippi, and out of that entire group, one believed. Why? Why did Lydia believe and the others did not? And again we read, And the Lord opened her heart that she attended to the spoken word. In the same way now, God opened the heart of the one criminal, causing him to believe. That now is what we read of in Romans 9. And that's what we see here in our text when we distinguish between the two criminals, two criminals equally condemned. Therefore, says Paul in Romans 9, 18, Therefore God has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills God hardens. People, how often do we not go astray in this particular point? We have here before us the doctrine of election and predestination. And it is a doctrine that to our sin-darkened minds seems unreasonable. And therefore we try to reason it out, and, and more often than not we try to reason it away. So often we want to take the way of the Arminian error. We conclude that man himself must prepare himself for salvation beforehand, and that then man must himself must see to it that he remains in the, in the favor of God afterwards through his own works. And to prove that this must be so, many Arminians will point us to the example of Paul. Look at Paul. Look at Paul, says the Arminian. What do they mean to say? Well, look, they say. Before his miraculous conversion on the Damascus Road, Paul was, as to the law, blameless. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and morally he was faultless. He kept the law of God. He led a good life. 
And then after his conversion, he became the apostle to the Gentiles, being constrained by the love of God. He spent himself preaching the gospel. He followed the master probably closer than any had before or after him. And he kept himself in the faith through his own tireless efforts. And then the conclusion is, that's the way of salvation. Paul prepared himself unto salvation beforehand, and he worked hard to maintain it afterwards. But, 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 but examine the folly of that thinking with me here in the context of, these, of the dying thief. He had no moral life before his conversion, and he had no opportunity for Christian service afterwards. Before his conversion, he respected neither the law of God nor the law of the land, and he died just a few hours after his conversion, never having any opportunity to engage in any Christian work or service. And I emphasize this, people of God, because that is the error under which so many of us lose our way. We're under the false illusion that we must prepare ourselves before God will accept us. And once having been accepted, it is possible to still lose our salvation if we don't work for it. But the dying thief had no good works, either before or after his conversion. And yet, yet he heard, Today you shall be with me in paradise. How can that be? Oh, we know the answer. Not of him who wills, nor of him who runs or works, but of God who sovereignly shows mercy to whom he wills, saved by sovereign grace. My dear people of God, how often men would try to explain this doctrine away. They would suggest that in the case of this converted man, it was the pain of the crucifixion that drove him to reconsider the things of the spiritual. Perhaps, as others suggest, it was the approach of death that caused him to reconsider the life hereafter. In other words, it was the outward circumstances that caused him to reevaluate his misspent life. But about all of these circumstances, all of those circumstances were instruments in the hand of God to bring about God's purposes. And moreover, it was God's purpose to bring this man to salvation at this time, in this place, and in this way. If it were indeed true that the pain of the cross drove this man to repentance, then the same would have to be said of the other criminal. We know that's not so. Both suffered the same circumstances externally but sovereign grace opened the heart of the one while the other remained shut up in his sin hear me well people of God external forces or influences circumstances in and of themselves will never never drive a man to Christ External influences may indeed be used by God toward that end but conversion results only when God opens the heart Oh, gird up the loins of your mind with me, as Peter says, and then let this biblical truth sink deeply, deeply into your very souls. What we have seen then here in our text is God's providence and God's grace as being the only things that can move a man to recognize Christ as Lord and Savior. The only way that any one of us can come to Christ is by the grace of God. When it comes to salvation, it's not a matter, as the Arminian says, it's not a matter of God offering and man accepting or rejecting or choosing. It's not a matter of man cooperating with God. No, no. Those who are saved are saved solely, only because of the grace of God. My dear, precious parents and grandparents, 
who mourn over lost and straying children. What tremendous comfort is given to you here. How often have we not, as godly parents, have we not wept over wandering children or grandchildren? How many nights were not spent with tears in prayer, begging God, pleading with God for the return of a prodigal son or a daughter? How many times have godly parents not cried out in despair and anguish, Lord, I don't know what to do. Lord, my child, my son, my daughter, my grandchild. Oh, people of God, here is the answer for you. Take heart, take comfort, take courage. Look to the thief on the cross. (laughs) In the hour of his death, we heard, Lord Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. Take hope then. God may yet work the miracle of grace in the heart of your son or your daughter. This text must also be of comfort for families whose unbelieving loved ones have died. Even at the very point of death, men and women, having rejected God and his Christ for all of their lives, can still in grace be brought to saving faith at the eleventh hour. But those of you who still mourn over wandering sons and daughters, You ask, how long? How long may I have hope? How long do I keep praying? Fathers, mothers, grandparents. If you are wrestling with God for the soul of your son or daughter or a grandchild, do so for as long as God grants you life and breath. God may yet work that miracle of redeeming grace even at the very portals of the shadow of death. Remember that God works in his own time in the accomplishment of his own purposes. And God had determined to bring this man to the cross before he softened his heart. Missionaries and preachers work with this fact across the world. Sometimes they labor for many years seeing scant or no fruit at all upon all of their hard work. In another place, the gospel is preached and many respond almost immediately. Ministers serve, ministers serve and preach in a congregation sometimes for years and the sermons seem to bounce off the walls of the sanctuary and men and women in the pews remain unchanged. And in the next congregation just down the street, the word of God goes out in fullness and truth and it is received with great joy and lives change. How do we explain that phenomenon? Was that now because of the gifts or talents of the preacher? Was it the persuasive talents of one man over against the dull, boring sermons of another? No, it was the grace of God. It was the time of God. It was the Spirit of God accompanying the preached Word of God. Oh, indeed, we must learn to pray for the conversion of souls, but we must also learn to wait upon the Lord, for He must do it. Those of us called by God and ordained by the church to preach Christ and Him crucified. Those of us who are called by God to rescue the perishing. We must take comfort in the fact that God does not call us to be successful. He only calls us to be faithful. He calls us to plant and to water and then to leave the increase to Him because it's all of God. People of God, if there be anyone here yet this afternoon who has not yet been brought fully under the influence of the cross, then God lays it upon my heart to call you to do so yet today. Oh, indeed, it is all of God, but God also commands you to believe. Never will you be able to blame God by saying, Oh, you know, I was not one of the chosen ones, so there was nothing I could do. Oh, no. You can never use that argument. 
No one can blame God that he or she was eternally lost. Oh, no. Indeed, we have heard much this afternoon about God's sovereignty, but with equal vigor does the Bible speak of man's responsibility. If you would still today refuse to hear the gospel, if you would still not be moved to seeking the Christ, even after seeing him on that cross this afternoon, then Jesus has nothing more to say to you other than the word he spoke to the Pharisees. You would not come that you might have salvation. Was it then because God did not choose you? No. God has called you again and again and again. He does so every Sunday again, twice. He's done so again this afternoon. What will you do with his call? Consider the reply of Christ to the penitent thief. Today you shall be with me in paradise. Precious, precious, precious words for the child of God. Words of comfort, encouragement, hope. They speak to us of God's abundant mercy. No one has ever sinned so deeply that the blood of the cross could not cleanse it. No one has ever come to Christ with broken heart and penitent spirit only to be turned away. If you are burdened with your sin, then look at this criminal on the cross. This man's sins were so great that they brought upon him a death sentence. But it was precisely there that Christ yet forgave him all of his misspent life. For you too, your sins may be so grievous that you fear there can be no forgiveness. Do not despair. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Finally, to the Christian, these words speak of hope, hope for the future. You shall be with me in paradise today, meaning then the very moment that you die, your soul, your conscious soul will be with Christ in paradise. Your body is separated from the soul. Your body is laid in the grave to await the second coming of our Lord. But your soul, your conscious soul, ascends immediately to be with Christ in paradise to worship him around the great white throne. Oh, may it be the prayer of each of us to cry out with that penitent thief, Jesus, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And in answer to such prayer, when offered in faith and repentance, God will surely answer to you, my child, my son, my daughter, you will be with me in paradise. Shall we pray? Father, when to the cross I turn my eyes and rest on Calvary, O Lamb of God, my sacrifice, I must remember thee. And when my failing lips grow dim and mind and memory flee, when thou shalt in thy kingdom come, then, Lord, remember me. Amen. Shall we sing of that using the words of hymn number 203, 203, and we'll sing all the stanzas. <laughs>